This podcast episode was recorded live by Oncology Data Advisor and Convey Med at the 2022 ASH Annual Meeting in New Orleans. Welcome to Oncology Data Advisor. Today we're here at the ASH Annual Meeting and I'm here with Dr. Ira Zakon. Thanks so much for joining today. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and about what you do? Sure. Uh, Well, I've been a practicing hematologist, oncologist for well over 30 years. Uh, I've been a subspecialist in the hematologic malignancies and benign hematology for well over a decade. Um, But I'm currently a a senior medical director with Ontada, uh, which is where we do uh, data-based real-world research and evidence. Great. So I know you have your retrospective study here on myelodysplastic syndromes. Would you like to tell us a little bit about this? Sure. Well, you know, myelodysplastic syndromes or MDS uh, has been a challenging uh, disease to treat. It occurs primarily in the elderly and outside of low-risk disease, uh, the, you know, the outcomes uh, have been uh, less than optimal and uh, limited treatments. And, and this retrospective study is using uh, the database of the U.S. Oncology Network, so it's a large network in terms of community-based practice, so really reflecting real-world patients. Uh, and this is a descriptive study of patterns of care and outcomes. Great. Um, so what were the results that your study found? So when we look, first of all, this is, the, to our knowledge, the largest population analyzed in retrospective data. There were over 2,700 patients, mm-hmm. and it was over a period of a decade from 2011 to 2021. Uh, So reflecting, we have to be mindful, it reflects that time of uh, therapy, although it hasn't changed a lot, but we can talk about that, you Mm -hmm. know, as we go along. Um, So as I mentioned, this, uh, we were primarily looking at uh, patterns of care as well as uh, overall survival outcomes. Um, And uh, so in this population of the 2,700 patients, uh, about one-third were uh, in the uh, low risk. So this is the, using the revised IPSS, which International Prognostic Scoring System. This is how we can uh, kind of subclassify, at least prognostically, different groups of patients. Um, so one third were in the low risk and the remainder were in what we might aggregate as high risk, which is in the system is intermediate, high or very high risk. Uh, these patients have uh, either more uh, advanced low blood counts or uh, adverse uh, cytogenetics uh, gene mutations picked up by classical cytogenetics in this classification system. Uh, so I think the important things that uh, from our data is that when we look at the proportion of patients who are into that, uh, what we might call high-risk MDS, um, really the primary th- therapy we've had over this de- that decade for sure and still is a hypomethylation agent such as azacitidine or decitabine. Um, and about 75% of the patients, three quarters, went on to a first-line therapy with a hypomethylating agent. So that leaves a gap. Well, what, what, is, what, what about the 25% who did not get treated? Um, so when we're working with retrospective data, we have to understand some of the limits of that. Uh, it's certainly, uh, in the, I should say that this patient population, the median age was 75 uh, and 40% were uh, female and 60% male. So at least this is, uh, is reflective of the uh, patient population uh, that we deal with, which is primarily a disease in the elderly. Uh, so, you know, of the 
uh, quarter of patients who we don't have documented therapy. It doesn't mean absolutely that they did not receive therapy. It is possible that they received therapy outside of the U.S. Oncology Network or went into a clinical trial outside of the U.S. Oncology Network. Um, 10% of this patient population went to <clears throat> allogeneic transplant. So you have to be fit uh, in the age group orbit on the younger side of that median um, to uh, likely be eligible to go to transplant. So that's a small minority of the overall patient population, which I think does reflect the real world. Um, but in the real world, many patients may not be treated for a whole variety of reasons, whether it's their, uh, their other health status uh, and individual circumstances that might uh, you know, preclude against therapy. But so on to the patients who were treated. Um, so that's the 75% of, uh, of patients. Uh, what was important that we saw was that, first of all, in terms of pattern of care, the major vast majority received azacitidine compared to decitabine, which would be common in terms of, again, uh, the, the, the uh, choices of therapy during that time. And when we looked at the median uh, duration of being on therapy, uh, with these therapies, we know we have to treat for at least four monthly cycles to before we evaluate efficacy. Uh, well, the median was just over under five months. So the majority of these patients uh, are not on therapy long in, in aggregate, generally less than a year. Um, so uh, it's really showing the limitations of the impact in the real world of hypomethylation therapy. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the other aspect was that over 80% never went on to a second line therapy that we identify, again, in our database. That's probably most <clears throat> don't get on to a second line therapy. Uh, again, some may have gone to transplant, it's a small minority. Some may have gone to a clinical trial or outside uh, therapy, but the majority probably don't get on to second line therapy. Um, again, reflecting limits of options that we've had, uh, as well as other individual factors at that uh, in the elderly population that might mitigate against going on therapy. Mm -hmm. So how do you propose that this um, can be used to impact treatment decisions in the future? Well, it's certainly highlighting um, the experience uh, mm -hmm. that we've had over, over that decade. And uh, it's primarily telling us uh, there's a real need, you know, mm -hmm. uh, to really transform um, understanding of this disease and, and how we may treat it. Um, I think the overall survival data, that was the other uh, part uh, of the data, uh, reflects that uh, when we look at the cohort that uh, was not low risk, um, you know, the median overall survival was under two years. Um, and when you segregate out the, um, you know, the very high risk population, that's only about 12 months. Um, and even in the intermediate group, which would be probably the most common mm -hmm. amongst that, uh, uh, less than two years, so about 20 months. Um, so, uh, so this, this study really points, paints the picture of where we have been and, and where we need to go. I think that uh, we will be seeing changes in MDS. So first of all, um, just understanding the uh, molecular uh, genomics profile, the mutational spectrum in these diseases. It's much more common to have uh, an NGS panel, for example, done on your bone marrow diagnostics, which gives you a, a full spectrum mm -hmm. of uh, myeloid disease. Uh, as you know, MDS, uh, as you may know, ultimately uh, may evolve into an acute myeloid leukemia, and that has certainly been a difficult 
disease with a poor prognosis in this patient population. Mm -hmm. um, so we are going to see first a refinement of the prognostic scoring system, um, looking at what's called a molecular IPSS or IPSSM. Um, this is integrating this data, which will further refine uh, kind of the spectrum and our understanding. Ultimately, we hope that's going to translate into uh, more actionable mutations, uh, as we're beginning to see in AML, being able to target specific mutations that may be driving uh, the behavior of the uh, disease more significantly to impact it more. Um, the other change is really we will be looking at MDS more as an acute myeloid leukemia, just in a different phase of the disease. Um, currently, we've had somewhat artificial uh, distinction between MDS and AML uh, based on, uh, you know, former classifications of the uh, WHO, um, in which you have to have more than 20% blast in your bone marrow or blood to be AML, and if you're less than 20% blast, you're MDS. Um, uh, but uh, we will be moving towards understanding that regardless of the blast count, um, it's, some, it's, it's in the spectrum of AML. Mm -hmm. uh, so in patients with excess blasts, um, we would be more likely treating that like an AML. Um, so that may be, now in that subset, we know that there are some patients with true favorable genetic profiles uh, in AML. We treat those with the kind of chemotherapy we would in younger patients because that's a different disease subset. They're not really MDS, they're AML. Mm -hmm. um, but there's uh, AML that will have MDS-like uh, genetic uh, profiles, and then there will be a true favorable risk AML. Um, uh, so these have different prognoses and need different treatment approaches. Um, and uh, so we will probably be treating more of these patients, not just with an HMA, but perhaps an HMA and an anti-BCL2, such as venetoclax, these current paradigms of how we might treat the elderly uh, with, uh, with AML. So I think that then we'd have to see the impact. Um, and of course, there are trials in this space uh, mm -hmm. looking at uh, novel uh, therapies, both currently existing for AML and importantly, you know, uh, innovation in this space in terms mm -hmm. of bringing new mechanisms of action. Great. That's exciting. Um, anything else you'd like to share, either about your research or about the other MDS researchers that you've seen here? Well, I think just a plug for the importance of real-world data mm -hmm. in retrospective. Uh, you know, we are we can't replace the importance of uh, you know prospective randomized clinical trials that ultimately uh, really drive the FDA approval of new, and bring new therapies. Mm -hmm. You know, to to our patients, um, but the importance of looking back at existing data and having um, databases, and especially, uh, you know, EHR-based, uh, which is very rich in data because it's really primarily a vehicle for patient care and mm -hmm. documentation of that patient care. Uh, but uh, really, uh, there's a lot of data that can be mined in terms of uh, looking at these patterns of care or asking important questions, even concurrently, uh, you know. Um, I think what, uh, you know, the future is, is and the FDA is, uh, is trying to look at how to uh, integrate real-world data as a source in prospect of, for example, controls, you mm -hmm. know, and, um, or contemporaneous controls. If you have a prospector trial um, doing contemporaneous, contemporaneous 
real-world data um, to have a timeline of both of these uh, data sets to fully inform uh, because we know that randomized trials, you know, are more selected populations, uh, whether by criteria, whether by just the ability to get onto a clinical trial. And uh, we're all aware of, uh, you know, the barriers and access to healthcare. Certainly clinical trials um, represents a small percentage, you know, mm -hmm. of the overall population. So I think that's where we do need to go into the real world uh, to really see, well, what are the treatments going on? What are the outcomes? How does that compare to uh, the trials that really led to the approval of these drugs. Right. Great. Um, that was very informative. So thanks so much for sharing that Great. with us. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to this podcast recorded live at the 2022 ASH annual meeting by Oncology Data Advisor and Convey Med. For more expert perspectives on the latest in cancer research and treatment, be sure to subscribe to the podcast at conveymed.io and oncdata.com. Don't forget to follow us on social media for news, exclusive interviews, and more.